any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of Pandemic Podcasts with your fearful host, Dr. Brian Keating, as I am known. But I'm talking today with a man who became a digital friend. I met him, I followed him 17 years ago. I first learned about uh, today's guest. And over the years, my admiration has only improved for he is the man I consider the most interesting man in the multiverse. And that is none other than Philip Greenspun joining us today from Taxachusetts, where it's my second conversation from Massachusetts today. I had a conversation with your neighbor, uh, Professor Max Tegmark at MIT, your alma mater. How are you doing today, Philip? Very well, but uh, we now refer to it as Massachusetts, not Taxachusetts. Ah, well, better here than there or there than here. We have a I just feel emasculated, but that's the only reason I'm doing all these podcasts because it's the one, you know, kosher reason you cannot wear a mask uh, besides eating when you're on an airplane. And we will talk about airplanes because that is the mode, the vector that I came to know about your existence in 2015 and 20, 2004, rather, <clears throat> I started to get interested, rekindle my love of aviation, which had kind of uh, lay fallow for some time because of the rigors of academia, trying to get a a, a postdoctoral position after going to graduate school and then uh, going to get a postdoctoral job at Stanford where I was promptly fired, as I recount in my book. Um, as Phil knows, he was one of my beta readers or early readers of the book. Uh, but, uh, but ultimately, I ran out of time, and then uh, luckily I did get back into it, and Phil deserves a great deal of credit for it because there was a brief window of time between getting a permanent uh, academic track job, as I have now, and having kids, which utterly destroys all semblance of time and space. So, Phil, first of all, thank you for rekindling my love of aviation and my connection to it, and really being kind of the person that I aspired to. So, let me read your uh, your bio. This is from Wikipedia, which is uh, which is you know the source of all scientific wisdom. <laughs> so, Be- before you do that, I, I was uh, I was asked I, I was. Uh, being uh, deposed by an attorney in a matter where I was in a, a patent case where I was an expert witness. And he pulled out the Wikipedia page and said, um, did you write this yourself? <laughs> and I say this, and I responded, does, does it say that Philip Greenspun is the greatest human being ever to walk the face of the earth? Because if not, then I didn't write it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I always say, like, um, you know, I, I write. I wrote the first draft of my Wikipedia uh, entry, and then my mother-in-law wrote the rebuttal. Phil, you do so many things, and I want to get into all of them. But let me just, you know, use the cliff notes. So my, my my project in 2021 is to take all of Wikipedia and condense it to, you know, single sentences. But for you, you were born in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, and you received a scientific bachelor's degree in mathematics from MIT in 1982, which meant that you were uh, about 19 years old when you got your uh, your bachelor's degree. After you graduated, you worked for Hewlett-Packard, according here. You wrote papers on the one of the earliest implementations of a medical record system using the World Wide Web, and that was later used in, uh, in, in applications at Harvard Medical School. You worked at Hearst Corporation. You co-founded Ars Digita in 1997, 
uh, and it's a company that grew to over 20 million in annual revenues by the year 2000. Earlier than that, you started a company which I knew well, <clears throat> although I'd never put two and two together until much later that the same Phil was responsible for photo.net. Uh, which was a huge, uh, a huge leap forward in, in photo sharing, but also in kind of this notion of of communities online. In some ways, it was a precursor to like Reddit and things. At least in my mind, it is. Uh, I think you you might correct me for my stupidity there. Uh, and then you uh, got into aviation. I believe you got in around the turn of the millennium, maybe a little bit before, and you quickly graduated up the ranks to get almost every possible uh, rating including helicopters, uh, as well as instructor ratings. And, uh, and you ended up writing a book called Travels with Samantha. Maybe we'll get into that. And I also think of you as a teacher. You teach at MIT. You teach courses at MIT and, and other places. You teach a- aviation as well. But I want to ask you, Phil, if one of these intelligent aliens comes to Earth, wakes you up in the middle of the night, shakes you, and says, who the hell are you? How do you identify yourself? Well, helicopter instructor is usually uh, my opening line if it's there if there's a, a gathering of people because computer programmer is usually a conversation ender. Um, and uh, but I do like to be known for teaching. So uh, yeah, teaching helicopters. Although I also teach airplane uh, instrument students and uh, jet pilots is uh, <clears throat> is a better. Uh, opener because it's more unusual and it, it doesn't drive people away. There's, um, I think it was at a, at a talk of you, yours in New York. Uh, a lot of people showed up to hear about physics. And uh, at the end of your talk, I said, if I offered uh, each of these people, the difference between physics and engineering is, is if we offered these people $100 to stay for an extra 15 minutes and hear a lecture on how their smartphone or television worked, they would flee uh, to every possible exit. <laughs> I just had on uh, Andy Viterbi, who is a well-known MIT alum as well, uh, co-inventor of uh, CDMA technology. And and uh, really before that, I had on Barry Barish, who won the 2017 Nobel Prize for co-detecting gravitational waves from black holes crashing together a billion years ago in our distant reach of our galaxy, or maybe another galaxy rather, and uh, both of them talked about how, how sad it is that so many people use technology invented by engineers and have no idea of the underlying scientific mechanisms by which these things operate, electromagnetic waves, et cetera. And, and so I, I think it's, um, it's interesting. I'd like to get your reaction. When, when you encounter people that have maybe a disdain of, of things like if you tell them databases, uh, but, uh, you know, they might roll their eyes even more. But, um, you know, kind of why do you think it is that that so many people use this technology but have no inclination, no curiosity maybe to find out more about the physics or the underlying mathematics of, of how it actually works? I think the problem is, you know, that engineering is not taught in public schools. You know, nobody... Uh, grows up with engineering, except I think uh, James Cameron, the uh, director, movie director, has uh, started his own uh, school somewhere in uh, the L.A. area uh, where engineering is used. But people don't understand, you know, how interesting it is to take a problem and uh, come up with, you know, alternative solutions to that problem and finally come up with something that's 
practical to build. So they just can't appreciate since they never try to do it. Uh, you know, they can't appreciate the activity. When you uh, co-founded uh, Ars Digita, you also started a nonprofit that established a prize, which is, you know, second in prestige only to the Nobel Prize, and that's the Ars Digita Prize. It's an award for young web developers. Is that still going on? It's not still going on. We also did a university. You know, we had people, we had a lot of um, people with strong academic backgrounds at our little software company. We thought, well, look, as long as we've got, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, people who, you know, have PhDs in computer science and would be qualified to teach this, this material. And there's a big shortage right now of software developers. And there's a lot of people who want to get in on this. So we came up with a one-year post-baccalaureate program uh, where we would teach, uh, we decided we were not going to innovate on the curriculum. We would just teach the standard MIT, Stanford, Carnegie Mellon uh, courses, uh, but we innovated on schedule. So they would learn it one course at a time, um, a month at a time, and we would innovate on environment. So instead of saying the people who are the most diligent about avoiding distractions, uh, they do the best. We said, everybody's going to come together in a uh, you know, open office type environment and they just have to show up from nine to six and pay attention. And if they have a question, they can ask the person uh, at the next desk or if that doesn't work, they can ask a teaching assistant who's roaming around the room. And it was highly effective. We took about 35 people who had you know, poetry uh, backgrounds um, and other non-technical backgrounds and we all got them, we got them all the way through uh, you know, what a bachelor's in computer science would entail. And they all got jobs. It was really, uh, that, was, that was probably the best nonprofit activity that I've done. Yeah, and it certainly had uh, kind of captivated, maybe pre, was a precursor to some of these endeavors. Uh, I'm going to have Michael Saylor. Do you know who that is? Yeah, I've heard of him. He's an MIT grad as well. Uh, a lot of stuff coming out of MIT. Uh, he is the chairman of MicroStrategy Corporation, which made headlines recently for trying to convince uh, Elon Musk to put much of the cash on hand on their balance sheet into Bitcoin. And so he's a huge advocate of Bitcoin. I don't know, have you investigated Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies at all? Do you think that that has the potential, as some say, to be you know the, the improvement of the web, whether it be in terms of financial engineering or in terms of you know security, uh, does Bitcoin or, or blockchain rather play any role in your life or in your mental uh, way of? Has, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm embarrassed to say that you know I didn't catch the Bitcoin wave early on. I did when I started teaching at Harvard Medical School. You can see this on philip.greenspun.com. It's still there. Just to uh, to alienate people at Harvard Medical School, I created a web page where you could, if you're a doctor, you could type in the year that you started medical school, how much tuition that you paid, and it would calculate um, how much uh, you would be worth if you had instead put your med school tuition into Bitcoin. And of course, it was in, you know, in the trillions of dollars in some cases. <laughs> <clears throat> so that's my main involvement with Bitcoin. You know, I never really got it. It always seemed like something that was going to be mostly useful for uh, evading uh, taxation or you know, paying off uh, people in criminal activities. Um, and then, you know, it really uh, became 
kind of uninteresting as a currency replacement when uh, I s- saw the, the transaction costs going up. You know, now I, I forget what, I don't know how much it costs now. It may be over $100 to record in the blockchain uh, that you bought something. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you try to use Bitcoin to buy a cup of coffee, you know, that would have to be at least a hundred and, uh, you know, $4 coffee to pay for these transaction costs. And you don't even know if the tra- transaction will commit. You have to put it in there. This is the dirty secret of Bitcoin. You can't be sure whether you've actually paid uh, in the sense that it's recorded in the blockchain, because if you don't add enough of a fee uh, for all the miners to put you into the blockchain, they'll just ignore the transaction and say, look, this guy is only offering to pay us $20 and it'll cost us more than that. So we're going to ignore it. So, you know, I, I'm not that high on Bitcoin as a, as a real currency a function of Bitcoin, I think is uh, helping people who want to, um, you know, leave the United States and not pay U.S. taxes. Actually, I know some people who are sitting on, you know, tens of millions of dollars of profits in Bitcoin, and the government has no idea that these people are rich. You know, their wealth is on a post-it note. It's the private key to their Bitcoin. So if you think about it, um, should they cash out their Bitcoin and tell California, yes, oh, I made all this money, here's your 13%. Tell the federal government I made all this money. I mean, uh, Joe Biden and uh, President Harris, you know, they're talking about... uh, 40% 40% capital gains rate. So should should they give more than half their profits or should they just, you know, quietly uh, move to, uh, you know, a low tax country and uh, pay the U.S. exit tax when they leave um, on the assets that the government knows about, uh, carry their post-it with them with the Bitcoin number and then cash in once they're uh, in, uh, you know, Singapore or uh, United Kingdom or some other place with a lower tax Tajikistan, rate. that's my plan, is to retire wealthy on my, you know, tenth of a Bitcoin. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that surprises me about you saying that is that I see naively, you know, blockchain as the ultimate expression of the database. And you really convinced me a long time ago. Uh, I used to think databases are really boring and it's just like, oh my God. I remember even making a database in 1989 for my computer science course at Case Western in Pascal, which I don't even know if you could like program in Pascal nowadays. There must be some like very high level interpreter of Pascal. But anyway, I did a database for some project and I remember saying, oh, this is cool. Now I could, you know, use it to keep track of my lemonade stands, you know, profit and loss and inventory. But, you know, then I went on to other things like uh, the high profit world of, uh, of experimental astrophysics. But, <clears throat> but you then later, you know, really convinced me through your work and, and through discussions that we've had that the, the database is almost like the most essential aspect of human life and even the World Wide Web. And that's why I'm surprised to hear you say that about blockchain, because blockchain is kind of like, as I understand it, this open database of every transaction preserved in digital amber you know, for everybody to see, everybody to validate. And one of the things, certainly it is used for illicit activities, maybe laundering or whatever, but one of the promises of it, like all technology, you know, has has limitations, all financial technology has limitations. And 
is built on the fundamental assertion that I don't trust you and we want to have some way of trusting each other. But one of the things that appeals to me is the ability to have a currency that actually does computation in that you can use it as a store of information, not only of a store of wealth. So maybe how do you react to that? Like the notion of these smart contracts that can be used in certain platforms like Ether um, and, and other uh, uh, you know, blockchain-based currencies. Is there any not interest from you? I'm surprised that you're so negative about it. I think it, it could be interesting, but I mean, you know, Americans already, speaking from a parochial American point of view, you know, for example, if you go over to a lot of European countries, and you want to know, you know, who has title to a piece of land? Uh, you just go down to the city hall, and there's a record, and whatever records they have in the city hall are dispositive. There's no title insurance. People would be confused by the concept of having an argument about who owns something, because you know the city hall's records are considered to be um, the last word. So even you know, blockchain, I guess it's useful if you don't have some kind of central authority that everybody can trust. Um, but uh, in the U.S., even when we've had these central authorities that people, you know, do trust, like, you know, you can trust the, the government wants to collect property tax, so we should be able to t trust them regarding who owns property, but we're still not willing to do it. Um, so I don't know if they really, I think what Americans would need to make better use of databases, you know, is, is more of a, a change in attitude rather than an enhancement in technology. Mm. You know, they, <clears throat> the Euro Europeans were doing this when the technology was, uh, you know, just pencil and paper. Right. Yes. And uh, even, you know, maybe even more primitive than that. I want to talk about some of the work that you've done um, again, sort of um, database related uh, in some sense, photo.net, you know, it's kind of a repository, um, you know, photographers and, and, and tips. And as I said, it's kind of like a Reddit, subreddit, just for like, like the ultra, you know, interested uh, photographers. But can you talk about that? How did photo.net come about? And why was it so successful in your opinion? You know, I think, um, I think it was successful because it was early, you know, there was not much else on the internet, if you wanted to learn about photography. So um, you know, people say, well, how do you, how do you do today? How would one do today what you did in 1993? And uh, the answer is, you know, you can't do it because there's too much competition for people's uh, time, energy, and attention. Um, but photo.net, it started out, you know, I was really passionate about the World Wide Web. Uh, and I said, this is going to be everything. Your, your spreadsheet's going to be in the browser. Your word processor is going to be in the browser. You're going to be working cooperatively with other people through the browser. There's going to be no more desktop applications. You know, I was saying all these things in early 1993 uh, around the hallways of MIT, and everybody told me to shut up. Professors said I was an idiot. Uh, in some sense, they were right. You know, I'm, I'm still paying for Microsoft Office today, so the desktop application uh, hasn't gone away. Um, but uh, so I took the summer off since nobody wanted to listen to me or fund me. <laughs> and uh, I drove to Alaska and back, wrote up Travels with Samantha as a, a series of uh, emails back to all my friends once a week. Um, 
And then when I got home, you know, I had a slideshow for all my friends, but for my friends who didn't live in Boston, I thought, well, I'll put up a web page with the pictures from the slideshow and the text from these letters I've been sending out. Um, and that uh, yielded all these questions. People kept asking questions about how did you take the picture of those bears? How did you uh, get the, uh, you know, uh, sunset picture? You know, what was your exposure time? So I thought, well, I'll just answer their questions by writing a couple tutorials on how to take pictures, and then they won't uh, have to email me anymore. But of course, the more I wrote, the more questions were raised, because it's an open-ended topic. Then I built a discussion forum. Uh, this is, you know, late 1993, early 1994, I guess. Uh, and I said, well, people can post their questions, and then I'll answer them, and then people will see the exchange. And of course, that ended up growing into a community where, you know, one one reader would ask a question and then another reader would answer it and I wouldn't have to be involved. So that led to a big you know, toolkit of software for Photo.net that I was giving away free to anybody else who wanted it um, and wanted to build a community maybe on a different topic. Um, so a bunch of big companies called me saying we wanted to use this for you know internal systems or public facing websites and you know I hung up probably on the first uh, five customers <laughs> I said hey you got how many people you got in your IT department and they would say you know 2000 I say I give you the source code I give you it's documented you got 2000 programmers you know and you want you know these six new features in the software why don't you build it yourself you know <laughs> slam the phone down but after uh, about six of those, I thought, well, maybe there's a business here. You know, they they were offering to pay money to uh, add these features to the toolkit, and uh, that was the genesis of ours, Digita, where we did what's now pretty common: support and service at a fee for what is free and open source software. Um, and you know, that was pretty successful. Although, of course, today everything's on a larger scale, so. Uh, you know, it's almost an embarrassment to say we had a profitable $20 million a year revenue company. That's, uh, yeah, by Facebook standards, that's slappable. But as I said, I think it was, you know, kind of the origin of a lot of these Quora and um, Reddit and sort of, uh, it certainly had that DNA as a long, early, early precursor to those, to those sites um and and that way you were very prescient i'm just looking now in my amazon you know search history purchase history so i purchased um travels with samantha uh, the first time i purchased it was <clears throat> april 18th 2010 so that okay. was 10 years ago it was written in july 2000 so um or at least the amazon version that i have it, is the hard yeah, the hard copy is from around then but it was written in, in 93 yeah i mean i guess what what really distinguished me from uh, you know my friends who built Amazon.com you know I was building database backed electronic commerce sites that launched right around the same time as Amazon um, you know what was different is that I wanted to teach other people how to do it whereas the other working software engineers you know either didn't have the time or didn't have the interest so you know I think I can take credit for. Uh, a lot of people came to the conclusion at the same time that the relational database management system would be a great tool for managing the concurrency problem of having you know hundreds or thousands of users simultaneously 
trying to update a database uh, by placing an order or adding a comment or bidding on something in eBay or whatever. But what I did that was different was, you know, I wrote it up as a textbook basically for uh, new programmers and, uh, you know, and then created a course at MIT where, you know, anybody could learn. And we made all the materials for the MIT course available to other universities. So I think, you know, that's, um, I, I don't want to say that I came up with this uh, architecture that became conventional of the relational database management system behind a website. Uh, but I did, uh, I did write the, uh, the textbooks that, uh, you know, enabled an, an, a generation of programmers to uh, easily uh, adopt that architecture. Now, I might be wrong, but uh, you introduced me to another MIT, uh, very popular podcaster, Matt, as a Guthin? Guth Miller. Guth Miller, yeah. So he has a great YouTube channel about flying around the world in his bonanza. And he was one of the youngest, if not the youngest, to circumnavigate the globe. And of course, we have a, a mutual friend, Robert De Laurentiis, who's been to the poles, both poles, over both poles at least in an airplane and and you of course helped uh, advise him advise me about that particular voyage he's gone around horizontally and vertically i want to switch now to, to aviation but before i do maybe it was matt who told me that basically you invented click to pay and things like amazon uses but you didn't patent it for some reason um can you talk about that what, what is the role of kind of you phil greenspun in and e-commerce and why would you not you know kind of lock in the you know potential profits from such a patent of intellectual property sure uh, i can talk about that but uh i will say the first time I'd, I'd heard about matt guff miller uh, but i hadn't met him until after he'd done his round the world uh, flight where he was the youngest person ever to fly around the world uh and he, and he did it in a single engine beach trap bonanza which requires uh, a level of bravery that is impossible to communicate to a society where people are afraid to leave their house now or send their children to school. <laughs> he launched uh, with extra fuel tanks over the Pacific Ocean for a 16-hour leg lying on one propeller and one piston engine. But anyway, I was giving a talk at MIT on a fun talk on helicopter aerodynamics. That's the kind of fun talk you can have at MIT. And uh, Matt, uh, you know, towards towards the middle of the talk or towards the end of the talk, Matt introduced himself and identified himself. And I, I told the assembled uh, listeners, I said, oh, you guys, you shouldn't be listening to me at all. You know, here's, <laughs> here's Matt Guffmiller. You know, he should be the one talking, not me. Um, he's much more interesting. So uh, the question was, um, well, oh, yeah, why not patent this stuff? I don't know. You know, I was busy, first of all. So, you know, and, and also people... People kept telling me how bad my ideas were. You know, I was working at Hearst Corporation and uh, at MIT Press. I also helped MIT Press build their online site. I think I implemented one-click ordering for MIT Press, um, and they liked it reasonably well, so they kept running it. Oh, wow. But, you know, at Hearst, things that we now take for granted and say, that's a great idea. At Hearst Corporation, they owned all these newspapers, which had classified ads. So I said, look... Um, what about a system where when people place an ad, it also goes into uh, a website database, a centralized nationwide one. And because people might be buying things from across the country, we'll need a reputation system. 
where if you buy from somebody and you have a good experience, you can uh, rate them. And we should have, since it's on a computer, we can let people either sell it for a fixed price or auction it. There's basically every feature of eBay um, built right around the same time as eBay in 1995. And uh, I told the Hearst managers, um, you know, about it. And they said, well, you know, that's a terrible idea. Uh, so I said, look, I've already written the software. Do you want to see it? And I would, you know, maybe that get, could get their attention for five minutes to look at it. And they said, it's still a terrible idea. I said, well, can I take the software and run it on my photo.net site so people can buy and sell cameras? And like, that's such a bad idea. That software is worthless and uh, you could do whatever you want with it. <laughs> so I, I put it on my photo.net site. Um, so that, that's, the, that's probably the main reason. I, I don't want to say that I was so altruistic. I mean, I kind of was. I was giving away all my software for free. Um, but it wasn't that uh, I thought, uh, you know, I'm giving up the opportunity to become incredibly rich as a patent uh, owner. Um, I asked that of Andy Viterbi also, the co-founder of Qualcomm <clears throat> and uh, inventor of the Viterbi algorithm. And, you know, why didn't they patent it, you know, early on? And, uh, you know, because they had these huge government contracts for... Uh, and they also had contracts with like HBO because people were stealing their signals from satellite dishes. And so, you know, part of it was like anti-piracy led to the creation of this tool that improves the bandwidth of cell phones, CDMA technology. And he said he made the point that by the time the patents actually would have started, get, you know, reaping, you know, remuneration that many decades had gone by and they weren't where they would have expired. And certainly, you know, Amazon, that's not the case if the F or eBay, if, if that's the case, but this theme of like you, cause I, I view you as a person with great conviction and courage. And it's sort of surprising, at least before I knew you, that you didn't have the courage of your convictions or you weren't like willing to listen and say, look, I think it's a good idea. I don't care what some Hearst magazine dinosaur you know, a newspaper thinks about what my idea is, I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to do it. And yeah, you don't have to do it to make money, you could do it to buy a fleet of airplanes to teach, you know, under, you know, privileged kids. Or, you know. But what, what have you changed in that way? You know, if you if you uh, are do things nowadays, would you be less inclined to listen to what some so called expert has to say about it? Well, it's not just that. I mean, remember, to, to patent you to patent something and have a legitimate patent, you truly have to be first. And there's just not that much new under the sun. If you'd asked me when I was developing that classified ad system, has anyone else ever built this? I would have said, you know, no, nope, this is, you know, it was my idea. Nobody else has built it. I had the idea because I was working at Hearst, which had a big classified ad business to begin with. But, you know, unbeknownst to me, you know, eBay was developing at roughly the same uh, time. So, mm. and, and, Probably there was somebody even before eBay, you know, that I don't know about. So uh, I, I'm not convinced that I was, uh, you know, I, I was definitely an early person in this area. But even catalog shopping, you know, all the stuff that's on the web today was done with modems by Peapod, the grocery delivery company. They were they were doing, uh, you know, catalog shopping e-commerce, which some people did eventually manage to patent. But I don't think the patents, um, some of them were ultimately invalidated and probably most of them uh, that were really just on that concept should have been invalidated because uh, the fact that it was on the web wasn't materially different from having it in a DOS application, you know, modeming into your local grocery store. 
Right. So looking at uh, Philip Greenspun, philip.greenspun.com, I am, of course, you know, familiar with many of your activities. Uh, There are four super categories, aviation, photography, travel, and teaching. We talked a little bit about teaching. We talked a little bit about travel and photography. Let's talk about aviation. What, you know, I remember hearing uh, from John and Martha King, San Diego heroes, uh, about uh, a very simple definition of why people should become pilots. And their, their statement was, that once you learn to fly, once you even get your, do your first solo, where you're alone in an airplane for the first time, <laughs> that your identity is forever changed, that you are now a pilot. And they, you know, we're not all Chuck Yeager, despite the way we might want to talk to air traffic control. But um, what is it about aviation that, uh, that you know, transfixes you personally, what what drew you to it, and what continues to keep you held under its gravitational uh, force, as opposed to lift, thrust, and uh, drag? Well, I'm definitely not uh, Chuck Yeager because my most memorable conversation with air traffic control was with New York Approach, where I got uh, in between them vectoring Airbuses up to uh, Europe. I got them to call my mom in Maryland to tell her that I was uh, encountering headwinds and was going to be half an hour late to land at the uh, Gaithersburg, Maryland airport. Simpler times. So yes, that's, uh, that's the difference between me and Chuck Yeager. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know what I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I would, my perspective is a little different than the Kings. You know, I fell in love with aviation because I like being up in the air, looking at the earth from above. Mm-hmm. So that was the thing that drew me in, in the first place. But what I think is great about aviation is it's a, combination of physical skills, intellectual skills, planning ahead, um, and emotional skills. Because if you're not afraid when you're up in the air, then you're probably, uh, you know, somehow defective. You know, you should be afraid uh, when you're up in the sky. It's not a natural thing for an animal other than a bird. So the question is, can you behave rationally even when you are afraid? And for most people, the answer is no. Uh, Actually, corona panic is a perfect example of that. You know, people are afraid of a new virus, which does make sense. Um, But then their reaction is completely irrational. Um, And uh, they, they, you know, tune out all possible uh, rational pathways in favor of uh, stuff that doesn't really make them safer, um, but you know, will potentially uh, harm them in a lot of other ways. So in aviation, however, you learn, you know, if you're approaching the runway, I, I used to fly the Canada Air Regional Jet. One of my fun jobs was working for Delta Airlines. So we would fly the Canada Air Re- Regional Jet and the final approach speed is 145 knots. So you're going 170 miles an hour, pointed down. It doesn't have leading edge slats like a Boeing or an Airbus. It's a, an adapted business jet. So the only way to maintain enough airspeed to keep the 50,000 or 47,000 pound for landing uh, weight uh, airplane uh, flying at an adequate airspeed is to point the nose down towards the ground like a lawn dart. And if you're approaching the ground at 170 70 miles an hour, you know, you, you should be scared. 
And in fact, there was a special briefing card for jump seating, you know, mainline air, airplane pilots, because so many of them, they'd gotten into the cockpit, the jump seat, uh, and they're used to flying Boeings, and they would freak out and start screaming, uh, you know, to pull up, pull up, uh, <laughs> because they didn't, uh, they weren't familiar with the Canada Air Regional Jet. So anyway, uh, that is what's great about aviation. You know, you are, part of you is going to be scared for on every landing. Mm-hmm. Um, you're approaching the runway. It doesn't feel right. Uh, helicopters actually, in some ways, are a little bit less scary because you just slow down, you gradually slow down. You know, I, I, for, for people who say they're afraid of aircraft, I often will take them up first in the helicopter rather than an airplane because you don't have that, you know, rushing off the runway sensation and you don't have that hurtling toward the ground sensation. So that's what I love about aviation. It works your emotional brain, your intellectual brain, and your physical uh, muscles, your coordination all at the same time. Yeah. And, uh, and it feels good when you can do, it's hard to do a perfect flight, but it feels great when you can do, you know, any kind of successful flight. Yeah. Any, you know, major accident scene you can walk away from, as they say. Um, I remember reading, you know, before I even had the temerity to contact you uh, uh, using email, um, I remember reading and being really uh, swayed by this argument that you made for certain types of people. You go to college and uh, you get good grades and but but you know after that you can go to graduate school which is not exactly like super college i mean i always say college there's homework problems and they all have solutions you may not be smart enough to solve them not you personally phil but uh but other people may not be but there is a solution that someone smart enough can answer in grad school you have super problems that even your advisor he or she doesn't know if there's a solution because there may not be a solution to it um and then after that you're like a postdoc a professor whatever there's no more grading like then you're done uh, and unless you go for the Nobel Prize, you know, in my case, or, or you write a book or you become, you know, Michio Kaku and Lawrence Krauss and start thinking about wormholes in the mind of God. But uh, but getting back to this hierarchical kind of um, hurdle that that academics fight with and then we kind of lose track. We've been graded for 30 years and now we're not graded anymore. But aviation offers this unlimited set of challenges you pointed out. Uh, a long time ago on a blog post that was kind of like a throwaway line, but in many ways it really spoke to me because you were basically saying like the FAA sets up all these different things. You can challenge yourself on your webpage. You haven't updated it uh, most uh, lately, but you go over your milestones in aviation, starting with um, exactly uh, 19 years ago, last, last week or so, and you had your first lesson in 2001, uh, December 11, not September 11 working your way all the way up to being an airline pilot, helicopter instructor, flying across the country, north, south, east, and west. And then it ter- right now it terminates with completing uh, training in a Pilatus PC-12, which is a very, very large, um, uh, challenging aircraft, the single-engine turboprop. I know you've gotten a pilot license or pilot type ratings in jets. How, how come you haven't updated your milestones yet recently? Well, that's a good point. You know, I don't have that many left. There's multi-engine seaplane, which I should get. There's a good uh, instructor down in uh, Alabama with a Grumman widget. It would be fun. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, you know, now I'm just enjoying it. You know, we did a trip. A friend of mine recently wanted to be dropped off in Bend, Oregon. Yes. I I think he'd flown commercial 
uh, a couple times recently, and there's been some sort of mask altercation <laughs> in either at an airport or on one leg, you know, not involving him, but it was still unpleasant enough that he's like, I, I just want to be dropped off in Bend, Oregon. So, you know, we loaded the whole family in the back of the Pilatus, his family and ours, uh, dropped off some people in Chicago, went to uh, Mount Rushmore in South Dakota, went to Bend, just took the family back via San Francisco, Las Vegas, Mammoth Cave in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and the Corvette Museum. Stopped to see the grandparents in uh, outside their retirement home in, uh, in Bethesda, Maryland, and back to Boston. So it was an 11-day trip, and you know, it felt great to have gotten the family through this whole thing. To have yeah. you know picked days and times when you know they could be flown and they wouldn't be subjected to getting bumped around, even though we crossed over the mountains. Um, so to me, you know, those are still. Uh, good milestones. I guess I should uh, I should put in that I landed I landed on the space shuttle runway back in January. Oh wow! In an aviation group, and we were invited by um, some astronauts who are part of the same group to come visit them. So we landed on the shuttle runway. Uh, that was a lot of fun down in Cape Canaveral. Very good. Yeah, I had on uh, Jessica my ear. I interviewed her at the beginning of January 2020 while she was on the space station. And that was a uh, surprisingly, not very long distance call because she was floating overhead about 200 miles up. Just interview, and then I interviewed one of her colleagues, Nicole Stott, who flew on the shuttle twice, and they spoke about flying. You know, in some ways, well, Nicole did at least that she was never scared for herself, but she was scared like what would happen for her kids, like the trauma if something were to happen to her, as you know, if they lost you know two percent of all shuttles in flight uh, or something like that. Two uh, percent, you know, compared to the number of flights, two flights ended right. in complete loss of crew and and vehicle. Uh, but she worried about that, and um, and you know, I wonder, do you ever experience you know this kind of? Ner- you talked about you know you should be scared a little bit, but you know, but before you fly or consequences of flying. I mean, that, that's a question I. I have, you know, get often and it's the cliche, you know, what do you do when the engine quits? I mean, uh, even in a helicopter, you have to deal with that. So you do you deal with fear at all, or have you, you know, so many, so many hours, so many, so much experience that you become an old pilot and no, are no longer a bold pilot. <laughs> I, I do, you know, especially helicopter instruction. Um, you know, there's, there's mistakes that students can make that, are pretty challenging for the instructor to, to fix. It's not like an airplane where if you have altitude and a little bit of airspeed, you're basically can recover from almost any situation. You know, the, the helicopter, if you're doing, um, you know, practice auto rotations, almost all of the accidents happen where people are, you know, preparing for real world emergencies that may never arise. Like right. so you, you use the throttle to roll the engine off to, show people, well, look, this is how dangerous an engine failure could be. <laughs> I've created this really dangerous <laughs> situation. You have to do it because it's part of the, uh, the yeah. training to, to know how to auto-rotate and land the helicopter without an engine. But uh, So I do worry. You know, I try to cut my risk, even though I have an airline transport pilot certificate, the same as a United Airlines uh, captain. You know, I really try, if I can, if I can arrange my schedule... So that the flight is something that would be doable by a student pilot, then I arrange it that way. So I say, look, I'm going to go to the big airport with a long runway. I'm going to go in daylight hours if I can. Um, uh, I'm going to go in visual weather conditions. Um, 
you know, if, if that's at all reasonable, I'm going to avoid icing conditions and super high, you know, crosswinds and all that other stuff. So I just try to set it up so that I never need to use my higher level of skill. Um, especially yeah, I heard a blue angel pilot once say, you know, people say, wow, you fly for the blue angels. You must have really good hand eye coordination. He's like, no, I, I, I use my training to avoid needing to have good hand eye coordination. <laughs> um so let's yeah see. so that's that that's exactly my exactly uh, my philosophy um yeah so i recognize it as a risk and uh you know statistically it is you know a higher risk for example than COVID. i'm constantly being uh, cautioned by every conversation now that i have with people like stay safe stay healthy they're always telling me this i'm like you know i i, 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 I you know it wouldn't be a good social convention to say, look, I'm a helicopter instructor. And <laughs> now that all forms of competing recreation have been outlawed by the governor, you know, our flight school is actually pretty busy. <laughs> so, so COVID is not my, you know, COVID's a risk, but it's not my biggest risk. It's like, you know, coming, finally, I can take a test where getting a negative result gives me a lot of pleasure. Um, I want to uh, close up with a couple of questions I'm going to ask you that I ask all my guests on um, online, but I want to talk just a little bit more about your, you know, kind of current uh, uh, peregrinations, shall we say, in the world of computing and uh, teaching at Harvard University, as you do now, uh, running a blog that, you know, your, your joke is you have uh, an interesting idea, a posting every day and an interesting idea every few months. Uh, today, you've got one about American central planners tackle vaccine scarcity. Uh, you've been you've been talking a lot about COVID, uh, COVID. What do you call it? Corona panic. Uh, you talked a little bit before that about the Trump and Fuhrer. Uh, but what you know? What are you really most interested in? Again, you you do so many different things. You're so interesting uh, to be around to, to to fly with. We've flown together. You gave me my first helicopter lesson. What would you you know? What's kind of your dream day like? What 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 do you uh, what are you looking forward to? And I want to ask you about. New Year's resolutions, if you uh, indulge in such things. But first of all, take what does Phil's ideal day look like? I mean, for me, teaching is really what I do love. Um, so at Harvard Med School, for example, we have a big database of insurance claims. And we start with third-year medical students. They're very interesting, intelligent, uh, nice people. Uh, but, um, you know, they don't have any background in software development usually. Um, you know, in a class of 25 people, we might have four that have significant programming backgrounds. Um, so I just love showing them the power of, uh, you know, learning the SQL language and being able to pull from these billions of medical records, interesting insights into, you know, what's the effect of these different drugs? How effective are they really? How effective are the flu vaccines uh, in terms of reducing the number of people who will eventually file a claim where the doctor uh, says they had a, they had the flu um, and learning some statistical programming. So I love that. Uh, I do like teaching at MIT, you know, the aeronautical engineering class or the software classes that I've taught there for the same reasons. So I think that's, that's where, you know, I experience probably the most joy is working with, you know, smart young people and helping them uh, learn. And there's the same thing with my website. You know, I just try to take everything that I've learned and write it down so that other people don't have to, you know, spend the time that I spent 
to study something. Uh, the Corona stuff is a bit of a distraction, but I think, I guess, you know, all of America has been pretty distracted by this. So I just look for sort of what's interesting to me is the cognitive dissonance. So, for example, the, the post from today that you mentioned, you know, people are saying we need a bigger government. If we had a bigger government, all of our problems will be solved. The government will do this stuff really well. But at the same time, they're saying, look, these state health departments in all 50 states are doing, you know, terrible jobs at distributing the coronavirus vaccine. They're just going to let it expire in a refrigerator because they can't figure out, you know, how to, how to get it into people's arms, which, you know, you can go to the smallest village anywhere on planet Earth and you can buy a Coca-Cola. So obviously the market has a way of distributing, uh, distributing stuff. Um, but um, yeah, I guess most of my ideas in computing that would really help people are a little bit too big. They involve, you know, starting a company, working 100 hours a week. Um, and I just don't know with, you know, I have kids. I don't know if it's fair to them for me to go back to that. But like one of my ideas is people know how to use their phones and they're pretty good at that. At the same time, people are terrible at using their desktop and laptop computers. You know, um, I think, you know, physics professors might be an exception. Um, but uh, for the average person, it's very burdensome for them to have to learn the Macintosh operating system or Windows when they already have a device that they know how to use. So that's one of my pet ideas is you should be able to have some kind of machine on your desktop where you plug your phone into the machine and it gives you the illusion that you're still using your phone. So you have all your computing services available, um, but the interfaces, the software, everything's this looks the same as if you were still on your phone. And uh, But again, that's the kind of thing that a Facebook or a Google could do pretty easily. Um, they've just chosen not to. Um, you think that we have suffered because of, you know, kind of the proliferation of software. I compare software to like theoretical physics where there's, you know, literally, you know, 200 different ideas for theories of everything or wormholes or time warps and stuff. But there's like five experiments that, you know, there's one, you know, major large hadron collider. Right? Uh, so there's no like proliferation of experiments of everything. It's all theory. And I make this comparison that like theory is cheaper because you don't need as much to do it. You don't even need a computer to do it. I mean, most, most of the best, you know, work that you might know from Einstein was not done using LaTeX or, you know, obviously uh, some, some fancy word processor. So it was pencil and paper. And, you know, we've gotten a lot, but I wonder, you know, is the kind of exponential, you know, proliferation of code, like 13 terabytes, what was it like? yesterday it was but you know 10 terabytes or whatever data is getting produced so massively and i wonder is there any hardware like are we lacking hardware like the phone you just showed i make the point you know at stanford you can name like 10 apps or software companies google being one of them you know youtube it came out of stanford directly in some sense but you know name a cell phone that came out of it now mit is different because it is it has a very forward looking kind of practical application. We saw the Boston Dynamics robots, you know, flipping around, dancing to Do You Love Me? Uh, but the question is, you know, what what about this proliferate? Are we, is, is humanity developing so much code and so much data and not enough hardware to take advantage of? 
I mean, the hardware, yeah, the hardware is a little bit stalled right now, right? I, I've got a four-year-old PC, I think, and I'm not motivated to upgrade it because the new ones really aren't any better. Um, I think the biggest problem in computing right now is that uh, you don't have learning built into the software as a default. So, for example, um, you can upload your pictures to your desktop computer every day. And, uh, you know, maybe you always pick up certain pictures and move them into folders with the conventional naming scheme that you like, how you want to organize your photos. You know, the computer will never learn. It'll never learn. Hey, this is how Brian likes to organize his photos. I'll just, you know, ask, uh, is this what you'd like me to do with these new, new pictures? So sometimes, you know, if, if everybody wants to do things a certain way, they'll explicitly build that into the operating system but the operating system can't learn from you it's starting to i mean when i get in my car and i have a tesla and it'll, it'll so you know drop the kids off at uh at the uh local prison no, no i mean at their school uh <laughs> you know whatever uh so it's learning certain things and my iphone you know will know it's a holiday you know tomorrow so it'll let me sleep in you know past the crack of noon when i normally get up yeah yeah but look how, look how bad autocorrect is. Autocorrect is really something that should learn, and it, it never seems to do very well. So that, I think, shows you the limits of learning. You, you admitted to being a Microsoft you know, uh, Word user, so, so you, you still have a paperclip, presumably, you know, asking you what to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or I'm, I'm talking more about like autocorrect typing on the iPhone, for oh, yeah. example. Um, so I think that's, that's, to me, is the limitation, is that software isn't built from day one with the idea that it's going to gradually uh, learn and be trainable. Because if you rely on human programmers to sort of put in every you know, possible situation with if statements, it's never going to, to work. The world is, is too big and complicated a place. And you'll get, you know, disinformation and, you know, like uh, we were, I was talking today with Max Tegmark, you know, imagine if, you know, Galileo puts up, uh, you know, he, he's in, he's living in today's era or Twitter exists in 1632 and, you know, the, the earth goes around the sun and then like this information is disputed, this claim is disputed by the Catholic <laughs> Church. Uh, and, and it's really true. If, like, if you go to your iPhone and you say, uh, I want to know what, um, what the time is in Jerusalem, Israel. And you go there, it's, uh, Jerusalem is the only city on earth that's not in the country. Uh, you know, that's an active decision. Like somebody made the decision not to have that uh, uh, as, an, as, a, you know, as an active choice. And, you know, so in some ways, maybe it'd be better, maybe it'd be worse. The same professor at MIT, Max Tegmark, was talking about AI, artificial intelligence, really at going to the next level when it can write its own code. So you seem to be... Um, I don't know. Are you are you skeptical that AI will be able to basically write itself? And let's ignore the you know the singularity and the destruction of all life uh, you know after that occurs. But do you see a future where code will just write itself? I mean, already we can do you know GPT three. We can dump in you know. I always say like, who would you rather learn physics from, me or or Albert Einstein? Well, Albert Einstein wrote a lot of stuff down. It's digitized. Dump it in, and you'll have you know uh, Professor Einstein teaching you relativity instead of Professor Keating. So what do you make of the prospects and, and promise of AI, you know, if nothing else, to write code, you know, that outperforms itself? Well, I mean, that's part of what I was talking about, right? If the machine is trainable, then either it's 
written some new code to reflect that training or it's got some new data to reflect that training. So I, I think I'm agreeing. Um, I'm agreeing with Professor Tegmark. Um, however, you know, AI is it's a, it's an it's an industry with a long history of over over promising. Um, you know, when it started, they said, "Look, it's a twenty year problem. Give us all this money, and we'll give you an AI in twenty years." And when that didn't work, they said, "Look, it's a fifty year problem." And it's still, you know, there's all these people. Mostly, they don't have kids. They say, you know, the singularity is near. Uh, most humans won't have jobs. And I say, look, uh, machines are so advanced that they've rendered humans redundant. You know, you go try to find, try to hire a babysitter for less than $25 an hour. It will actually show up to your house and then come back. I show up your- once with my kids. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then. <laughs> Come back and tell me that, you know, there's this huge surplus of human labor out there, you know, because of machines. So as of right now, you know, uh, a human that will show up and actually work, um, you know, on the schedule that you've agreed and be reasonably responsible and do something that, you know, doesn't require special training, like being a babysitter. uh, It's harder than ever to hire somebody to do that. And, and we're we're very we're deep into the period of time when the AI enthusiasts said that you know half or more humans would just be sitting on the beach while the robots uh, did their old, old job. Um, so I, I think maybe the AI enthusiasts are right, but they're they're wrong about the timeline. You know, it may not even happen um, for fifty or a hundred more years. You know, the brain is still vastly more powerful than all of this hardware due to the number of inner, you know, the, there's not that many uh, gates or transistors in your brain, but there, there's a lot of them, uh, but, but they're heavily interconnected. So, you know, they're not that fast, mm-hmm. but they're, uh, there's a lot of them and they're heavily interconnected. Yeah. And that brings me maybe to the last point uh, for, you know, looking in the future uh, before we look into your personal future, what you're looking forward to in 2021 but uh, that's like quantum computers are very good or better than any classical computer at simulating the properties of quantum computers. And I kind of think, you know, maybe that's what will happen with AI. It'll start to understand itself. Um, but, you know, as I was quipping in my, in my uh, professorial way today, you know, perhaps the, you know, the thing that we don't, we don't need more intelligence. Uh, we need more wisdom. So like, can we create artificial wisdom because that's what I would really care about. So Max Tegmark, again, I would love to you know, be the matchmaker matching you guys together uh, in 2021. But he has this new uh, feature, this new web project called improvethenews.org. And it's all about like synthesizing. Uh, the, the notion is that there's this Overton window of what's acceptable to someone on the left and acceptable to someone on the right. And they used to overlap, and now they don't. And so he has this feature where you can it's a news aggregator and you can basically crank it all the way left, you know, for Noam Chomsky fellow uh, MIT professor who I had on my show this year. Uh, You know, you can crank it all the way to right Ben Shapiro who I had on my show this year. Uh, And the question is, you know, do you get something in the middle? Like how did, how does your cortisol level react when you know, when now you can control I'm getting, you know, Fox news versus MSNBC or, or, you know, and New York times. So, 
that's a fun project and it's kind of like simulating or maybe to expose the biases. I, I felt like he should have rolled it out in science first to show, you know, just for scientific consensus, how tenuous it is. Uh, we're often told, you know, listen to the scientist. And like, I don't know a scientist who just like listens to scientists. Do you? I mean, like I, I fight with scientists. That's part of what science is. It's supposed to be argumentative and adversarial and, and to say, Oh, just listen to them. I'm fine listening to you if you're an expert, you know, in quantum computing, but that doesn't mean you're going to be an expert in epidemiology. But I, nowadays we're all epidemiologists, right? I think the wisest thing about the media, uh, so I know a Russian uh, immigrant here in Massachusetts and uh, regarding uh, our neighbors who, uh, you know, listen to NPR and read the New York Times, she says that the difference uh, between growing up in... Um, Russia uh, and the people here is uh, in the Soviet times. Uh, we we didn't believe the propaganda, right? <laughs> well, the actual uh, they had two newspapers. One was called um, one was called News, and I forget how you say that in Russian. You can ask. It was Zestia. and then the other one was called Pravda, which truth. means truth. And they used to joke, "There's no truth in in the news, and there's no news in the truth." <laughs> and they would say things like, you know. In, in 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 Russia, you know the the future uh, the future is always known, but the past is always changing. <laughs> and I worry about us in these in these perilous times. But I want to close on a note of of optimism, maybe looking forward to the future. As you know, January is named after the uh, Roman god Janus, that looks forwards and backwards at both times. Uh, what are you looking forward to in twenty twenty one? maybe resolutions that you've made. I made a resolution to, to drop five pounds, um, which I did this year. I dropped five pounds from my double chin to my stomach. Uh, but what I'd like to do is to actually keep it off. Uh, do you have any New Year's resolutions? And what are you looking forward to in 2021? Uh, that's a good question. Well, my last, my, my last New Year's resolutions crashed and burned, um, which was to travel more. You know, I said, look, this is what I really love is traveling and seeing more new parts of the world. So I signed up, you know, I accepted invitations from all of my friends around the world, people that I had met. Uh, I was going to go to the Glyndebourne Opera uh, in 2020 uh, with this uh, lady. She was in the James Bond movie on Her Majesty's Secret Service mm. way back in the 60s. And uh, I had the plans to go to the stands, Uzbekistan and uh, Turkmenistan, et cetera, with MIT travel. Uh, alumni travel, which I think has now been disbanded, <laughs> shut down. Uh, I was going to go with you to Chile. That's right. Um, that will happen, I'm sure. So we'll, I would we'll catch the next eclipse down there someday. I don't know. My concerns are kind of parochial. Actually, I'm kind of looking for something for our kids. Um, it would be interesting. Maybe we'll have to start a school. So what hmm. we would like for our kids is a school where they have reasonably strong academics a couple hours of physical activity every day, mm -hmm. which schools have really cut down on, um, and um, no political indoctrination. Mm. So at least here in Massachusetts, you know, the schools have become these centers where they spend a lot of time trying to educate the kids about, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter, diversity and inclusion, which is absurd because these are in these suburbs where people have paid, you know, multiple uh, times the cost in order to get away from diversity. Uh, 
And um, so it'd be nice to have a school that is concentrated on the academic mission rather than on this political mission. Um, it's not that we're, it's not really, it's not that I'm worried that our kids will be indoctrinated. It's just that now that the schools have this political mission, they've forgotten about academics. They're like, well, as long as we can teach them diversity and inclusion and about, uh, you know, all the elements of the rainbow flag, uh, it doesn't matter whether they, uh, you know, learn to read and write. Um, most enterprises are only good at one thing, if that. So now that the school is a political environment instead of an academic one, the academics are truly terrible. So anyway, that, that would be the kind of thing that would be interesting. The schools that exist that have a lot of physical activity are mostly like these professional sports academies. Hmm. So they're great if you want your kid to become a professional tennis player. But if you don't need five hours a day of activity and training and, and or your kid is just not that coordinated, uh, there's nothing left. So that, that that's one goal, which is a pretty boring one. Um, maybe I should get that multi-engine seaplane rating. So I don't know. I don't, I don't have a uh, I don't have a great New Year's uh, resolution. Yes, I, and it would be good to get. Uh, I definitely uh, it's not good having more chins than uh, the Shanghai phone book. Oh, God. Oh, on that one. That was an old one. That's a, a weird Al Yankovic reference, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, last couple of questions I want to ask you. If you've ever seen the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey, you will surely recognize... Uh-oh. Uh, what's that? I, uh-oh, I didn't understand the last uh, half hour. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Uh, you have to. Uh, this is just going to refer to the first forty-two seconds uh, when these primates in the savanna of ancient Africa come oh. upon this mysterious monolith, this black obelisk-looking thing uh, that is really put there by some unseen, menacing, maybe benevolent civilization billions of years ago to be deciphered when humankind is ready to read the writing on such a such an obelisk. Uh, MIT alum Richard Feynman uh, kind of um, described what he would want to put on such an object, a billionaire time capsule. And he called it, uh, he said, if in some cataclysm, all scientific knowledge were to be destroyed and one sentence passed on to the next generation of creatures, which statement would contain the most information in the fewest words? I won't tell you what he said, but I want to know what would you put on a billionaire long lasting time capsule? Ooh, probably, probably Maxwell's equations, you know, if you think about it, actually, you know, Americans, Americans somehow believe that, that the U.S. is the center of science and no offense to you being an American scientist, but really the stuff that we actually need and depend on, on a daily basis, is pretty much all coming from England or Europe. You know, so if you want heat in your house, uh, light in your bedroom, um, TV, you know, all the things that people love, computing even, you know, people think of computing as an American thing, but it was all developed in parallel over in England. Um, So I think for me, electricity and understanding a lot of other stuff can be kind of worked out from intuition, you know, if you watch a coconut fall from a palm tree then you'll probably pick up the idea of gravity soon enough um but electricity and magnetism is uh, fundamental to everything that we love and uh, it's not intuitive so that that that's um 
that's what I will put on there is Maxwell's there equations. Yeah. And then the update of them, which is more relevant in my daily life, are the Yang-Mills equations, which govern uh, you know subatomic nuclei. Uh, but that is admittedly more of my persuasion, but those were created uh, many, many decades ago. Uh, so the last question I want to ask you harkens to the name of this podcast which is one of Sir Arthur C. Clarke's famous three laws. His first one being what we open the show with, read in his voice, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Uh, his second law will appeal to the contrarian greenspun, which is uh, for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert. <laughs> and the third law is... The only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. So that's kind of the origin of the name of this podcast, the Into the Impossible podcast. So I want to ask you, what was very mysterious about life, the universe, and everything to a 20-year-old Philip, but as you matured and grew older through your courage, your convictions, et cetera, now is eminently doable because you went into the impossible? <clears throat> advice to your former self um i don't know if i have a good technical one for that um you know i do think i i do think people overestimate what they can know i guess when i was 20 years old i was probably more sure about uh the things that i knew i mean as you've seen from john ionides right most published uh, research findings are false. You know, even things that are supposedly scientific uh, are actually, um, you know, should be doubted. Uh, so I think that's, I, I see so much of this, you know, in politics, around Corona, around corona plague. Uh, people express certainty about uh, something that uh, they really shouldn't be certain about. So I think as I've gotten older, I've become more willing to believe and understand that you know other people can have a different perspective. It's uh, equally valid to mine. It may reflect their personal situation. You know, before we were talking about we were talking about this before. You know, the the merits of lockdown are going to seem very different to somebody who lives in a 6,000 square foot suburban house compared to somebody who lives with four other people in a two bedroom apartment in the middle of the city somewhere. Um, but I think a lot of people lose sight of that and they're just saying, well, you know, science proves that I'm right. Uh, but often, often what they're saying is, you know, it's about something that's, it's, well, it's right for me. So I'll just extrapolate to the rest of humanity. It also has to be right for everybody else. Right. Uh, survivorship bias that comes into play. Well, Phil, I want to uh, thank you very much for being an inspiration to me and to I know millions of people around the world who have benefited from your, your curious mind in the best sense of the word. And I can think of no one more fitting to uh, hold the mantle of today's guest on the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination than the very imaginative Dr. Philip Greenspun. He is a doctor. He is not a medical doctor, but he does prescribe medication on demand. And his address is... No, I'm just kidding. Phil, where can people find you online if you have to steer folks to a couple of your resources? Where would you want them to go? 
First of all, my brother's a real doctor. And I said, I have that right on my resume. So you can't call me Dr. Greenspun. <laughs> um, and anybody else who, who introduces themselves as doctor is at, at risk of me saying, um, oh, I'm so glad that you're here because um, I need my fentanyl prescription renewed. Um, <laughs> but yes, you can, uh, you can come to my modestly uh, named uh, website, philip.greenspun.com. Okay, great. And then you have a Twitter account, which um, has fucked up to my blog. I'm, I'm still I'm a web dinosaur, so I'm not a Twitter achiever like you. That's right. Well, from all of us at the Microsoft Paperclip headquarters, uh, Phil, we're on the West Coast. You're going to be cracking open the champagne before we do. Say hello to 2021, uh, and I hope you have a safe, a happy, uh, productive flying career in 2021 i know everything else will work out fine i'm not gonna tell you to stay sanitized because i know you already are and uh, i really want to thank you it's so much fun talking to you and hopefully we'll make this a traditional comeback every so often and uh you and i will will speculate and ruminate on the news of the universe so thank you so much phil for going into the impossible you're welcome any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening to Into the Impossible with Professor Brian Keating. Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. We appreciate hearing from you, and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating. That's D-R, Brian Keating. And join our premieres Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium, and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Brian Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Volko and Brian Keating.